Listening to the Touch Em Up podcast. I'm your host, Double M, and on today's episode, we have UFC Vegas 43, Tate versus Vieira, preview predictions and analysis. In the main event of the evening, you have a women's bantamweight bout between the number seven ranked phenomenal Ketlin Vieira going up against the number eight ranked Misha Cupcake Tate, the former women's 135 pound bantamweight champion and a legend of women's MMA. And in the co-main event, you have what many people believe should have been the main event in a welterweight bout between undefeated UFC welterweight prospect, Sean Brady, who comes into this fight, 14 victories, no defeats, going up against the number six ranked former lightweight and current welterweight contender in Michael Maverick Chiesa, comes into this fight with a record of 18 victories and five defeats. So without any further ado, let's get this started and step into the ring. All right, everybody. All right, all right, all right. I'm sorry if that intro wasn't energetic enough for you. I'm sorry if it wasn't over the top like my intros normally are. Um, it's a little bit late by me, so I don't want to be too loud um, where I'm where I'm at. I don't want to wake anybody up. So I, I got to get these predictions out to you, though, and I think there was no better time than to do them tonight because if I got them out tomorrow, not enough people would have been able to see them. So I wanted to give at least a couple days for people to listen to these predictions and digest them and digest my pre-fight breakdown and analysis before UFC Vegas 43 takes place this Saturday, November 20th. So we're going to start it off, and, and before we get into it, I just want to say I will have UFC 267 analysis and breakdown and uh, matchmaker up, so who I think the winners should fight next, who I think the losers should fight next, my technical breakdowns on those fights, and UFC 268 as well. So do not think that just because they're not up, I have forgot about them. I would like to actually do a dual event breakdown because they were one week after the other. So in my opinion, I think it's better to put them both out at the same time. Uh, you know, have a 267 and 268 predict uh, analysis break down who I think the winner should fight, what I thought about the fights. I think it's better to do that together and possibly have a guest on that show as well than to break it up into multiple episodes. So it'd probably be close to a two-hour episode, I'm not going to lie. But I want to get these predictions out to you. And we're going to start it off because I don't want to take too long tonight. Um, it's going to be the lightweight division. It's going to be, well, we'll start off with the prelims. And it's going to be a battle in the lightweight division between Terrence T-Rex McKinney, who comes into this fight with a record of 11 victories and three defeats, going up against kickboxing standout and phenomenal striker in Fares smile killer Ziam. He comes into this fight with a record of 12 victories and three defeats. So very close in terms of the record. McKinney only has one fight in the UFC. Um, and he came in against Matt Frivola on short notice at UFC 263. He filled in for Frank Camacho who had to pull out of the fight due to being in a car accident, stepped in against Frivola, came out southpaw against the Orthodox in Frivola, and pop pop one, two down the middle, dropped him, a couple follow-up shots, and that was it. It was a seven-second knockout for the UFC debut, debutant in uh, Terrence McKenney. Very quick, very dominant win. Um, and then he got up on the cage to celebrate, jumped down, and actually blew his right knee out. I believe it was his right knee. Correct me if I'm wrong. But he got injured, so now he's making his comeback, um, you know, about seven or eight months later. So it's going to be interesting to see where McKinney is currently and how he matches up against the long, rangy, lengthy striker in Fares Smile Killer, Ziam. Ziam only has a few fights in the UFC 
He has a decision victory over Luigi Vendramini, and then he has a decision victory over Jamie Malarkey, which was a very close fight. I could have seen them giving that fight to, you know, Jamie Malarkey, but I'm not mad at the fact that they gave that fight to Ziam. I just watched that fight today. Um, that actually impressed me with how good Faraz, Faraz's, you know, defensive grappling, his ability to bridge from the bottom position and roll into the top position. You know, he's very good at bridging. Yes, it's more using power and strength than using technique. He's a long rangey guy. And usually when you're long and rangey, Against a guy who's primarily a striker, your grappling might look good. But when you fight a guy who's, you know, a grappler, a heavy grappler in a wrestling base, those long limbs and that long body can get you tied up a little bit quicker than if you're shorter and stockier because it's easier to find a path to your arms. It's easier to find a path to your legs. It's easier to try to, you know, sink those hooks in and get into that top control. In this fight, I think McKinney does have the opportunity to land that one-two down the middle. They're coming out southpaw versus orthodox. McKinney is the southpaw. He's got a beautiful one-two. He has really good high kicks, which is something I don't know if a lot of people have mentioned in the breakdowns, but he's got a few finishes via high kick, and he can land that high kick from southpaw with the left leg, and he can also land the high kick from orthodox with the right leg. So whether he's southpaw or orthodox, if he's switching back and forth between the stances, he can land those high kicks. I don't think that the high kicks are going to be a good weapon against a guy like ZM, who's very tall, very long, very rangy for the lightweight division. You know, it's not going to be easy to land those kicks against a guy who's so much taller, who has so much more range. So if McKinney is going to go with the kicks, I think he should go to the outside leg or I'm sorry, to the inside leg because they're opposite stances. You want to go to the inside of the left leg of ZM and you want to go to the body. You don't want to try to go to the head against a guy who's so long and rangy because if you knock off balance, he can step in with a one-two. He can step in with a check left hook. You know, he can counter you with a kick if you slip off balance on your own. It's just a dangerous thing to do against a guy who's so, you know, polished on the feet. Now, when you look at this fight, I think a lot, I see a lot of people picking Terrence McKinney. Um, you know, you come into the UFC, you get a knockout against a veteran in Matt Favola, and you do it so easily with that be beautiful step in one, two, and then the follow-up ground and pound shots. Yes, he's got power. Yes, he's got speed. You know, he was originally coached by Michael Chiesa back in uh, in college wrestling. He was coached by Chiesa. Um, he was coached by him when Chiesa won the Ultimate Fighter. You know, they have a very long, you know, storied history together, obviously, with, uh, Kiesa being McKinney's coach and they're fighting on the same card. So that's a great story. And it's really, really awesome that they're able to share a card. Finally, I don't think they ever have been able to do that before. I mean, obviously not in the UFC, but I don't even think on the regional scene, they were able to do anything. So this is the card they're sharing together, you know, coach and student. But, um, I honestly think that this for CM fight is very, very difficult for Terrence McKinney. McKenney's got good wrestling. He's got good grappling. If he uses the pace and pressure, when it goes to that midpoint of the second round, into the third round, towards the end of the third round, he can use his wrestling, get Faras up against the cage, and really break down. Really break down uh, his opponent and then work his wrestling, work the top position, work the top control. But he does have good ability, like we said, from ZM to bridge out, to get into the top position. You know, He's very, very good at that. So I think that that's something that 
we're going to see from Ziam. I don't think he wants to be on the ground at all. I think if he if he wants to win this fight, you have to keep him at keep him at the end of your jab. He's got a very slick jab, a good left hook. He's got to keep McKinney at the end of his jab, use that check left hook to get the outside foot, and then control the range and the distance. That's the only way that Faraz Ziam is going to win this fight. If he gets in close range, yes, he can land good shots from the clinch, but you don't want to be there because that's going to give up your hips to a guy like McKinney who can use his great wrestling, which we haven't seen in his UFC career yet. Like we said, we've only seen seven seconds of him, but he does have good wrestling. He has gotten submissions in his career. He can find a way to your back. He can land brutal ground and pound. You don't want to be on the ground um, against McKinney if you're Faraz CM. But I honestly think it's going to be really hard for McKinney to be able to step in. I think it's going to be a little bit harder for him to get to those hips of Ziam. And even if he gets to those hips, early on, it's not easy to take down Faraz. He's got good, or I'm sorry, take down Faraz. He's got good hips. He's got good ability to use that wizard, that wizard kick to uh, get the opponent square with him and then use the clinch to get out. And he can use elbows off the brakes, knees up the middle. He's very good at defending takedowns. But the longer the fight goes, I think that those defenses are going to wear down, and that's when McKinney can take over with the wrestling. So if this goes into the, the late second round, into the third round, that's where McKinney's going to take over with the grappling and the wrestling approach. But I honestly think we're going to see a lot of uh, striking from McKinney. He's got power. He's got quick hands. That one-two is, you know, that one-two is dangerous. But I honestly think that the range, the distance control, the one-two, the elbows off the break, the knees up the middle, you know, controlling the fight with the jab is going to be the story of this fight, I believe. I think that ZM is going to be able to use those fakes and feints. He's going to switch stance to southpaw, go back to orthodox, and use that jab. Use that quick jab, fake the jab, throw the left hook to get that outside foot. Use those teep kicks up the middle. But if he wants to use those kicks, he has to set it up with the hands because you don't want um, – McKinney to catch the kick and shoot a takedown, you know, transition to a head on the inside single, transition to a double leg. You don't want to be in the wrestling exchanges, but it's going to be harder for McKinney to take down Faraz because of his height, his length, and, you know, just how big he is. It's going to be a little bit harder to take him down. So I think that Faraz CM gets it done here. I think he gets a decision. I think he loses the third round because McKinney's finally able to get him to the ground and work some ground and pound. He does get tired because he's so active with that lateral movement, you know, moving around the cage, using his length and using his reach that gets tiring over a 15 minute fight. But I think he's going to do enough in the first two rounds, land those low kicks, you know, chop the inside leg of McKinney, use the one, two, use the fakes and feints and just keep him at the end of that jab for the entirety of the first two rounds, or maybe the first round and a half, but he'll do enough in that second round to, to steal it. So I'm going to go with Ferraciem to defeat Terrence McKinney here via a 29-28 unanimous decision. I could see it a split because I do think we probably get a dominant third round performance from Terrence McKinney, but I do think that he does, uh, that Faras does enough to take those first two rounds. All right, up next on the prelims, you've got a battle in the featherweight division between Pat Sabatini, who comes into this fight with a record of 15 victories and three defeats, versus Top Gun Tucker Lutz, who comes into this fight with a record of 12 victories and one defeat. Um, honestly, this is basically, in my opinion, it's the story of striker versus grappler. If the fight stays on the feet, Tucker Lutz has a beautiful check left hook, and fighting a southpaw in Pat Sabatini, who's a very low stance fighter because he likes to use that wrestling and that jujitsu, he wants to stay low to the ground. That doesn't mean that Sabatini doesn't have good um, striking in and of himself. You know, he will switch between southpaw and orthodox as he moves laterally, but, you know, his main 
bread and butter for him to win this fight is to get that takedown or, you know, get a takedown position, drag him back in the body lock, look for leg locks, look to control from the top position, look to take the back of Tucker Lutz, get control and look to set up that jujitsu and look to set up those submissions. If Pat Sabatini gets on top of Tucker Lutz, you know, and, and can use this wrestling in his, you know, great jujitsu for the majority of this fight, he's going to win. If he can't get the fight to the ground, Tucker Lutz is going to eat him up on the feet. You know, Pat Sabatini, he's got a good overhand left. He's got a good right hook. He's got a good switch stance, overhand right. You know, he's got good striking. His striking isn't that bad. He's good technically. You know, he, he's got good shots. They are a little bit wider and a little bit more loopy than the shots that Tucker Lutz throws, which I think you're going to see if this fight does stay on the feet for longer than Sabatini wants it to. And, you know, Top Gun Tucker Lutz, like I said, really good boxing. He will switch between southpaw and orthodox. If he goes uh, southpaw, look for him to try to land those le that left kick to the body. But mainly he likes to fight out of orthodox and his best punch is that, that check left hook, especially over the jab, um, considering that he's fighting a southpaw fighter. He's going to be looking to throw that check hook over the jab and step to the outside, get that outside foot and constantly have Pat Sabatini trying to turn into him. And he has good, he's, you know, gone to decision in his career. If you look at Tucker Lutz's, you know, record, like I said, he's 12 and one, but he's gotten decision wins, decision wins, TKO, KO, TKO, TKO, decision. He's got a submission via guillotine choke. He has two submissions on his record via guillotine choke. He lost his first professional fight at uh, Shogun Fights 13 to Elvin Mercer. That was back in October of 2015. And then he went on a 12-fight win streak. We've seen fighters in their career who've lost their first fight and then gone on win streaks. You know, Zhang Wei Li and, uh, you know, a few others. I mean, I can't think of them off my off the top of my head, but Zhang Wei Li lost her first fight and then went on a 22-fight win streak. So I'm sorry, the audio cut out there, but, you know, fighters have lost their first fight and then gone on win streaks. That's what happens in mixed martial arts, and that's what we see from Tucker Lutz. I do think that the longer the fight goes, it's kind of like the story of the first fight I discussed between McKinney and Ziam, but this is a little bit different. You know, when it gets into that third round, Tucker Lutz is so active on the feet with his counter ability, a good counter check left hook. We saw it against Kevin Aguilar. He can throw that left hook from just about anywhere. He can step back and throw a check left hook. He can check left hook you over your jab. If you're in his same stance, he'll check left hook you over the, the cross that you're throwing from that orthodox stance. So if you throw the cross, he'll come back with a left hook over the top. He's very good at timing it and very good at landing the left hook. Considering that Sabatini is a southpaw, and he's got a very low stance. Tucker Lutz is going to be popping that jab. He's going to fake the jab and throw the left hook. He's going to fake the right hand and throw the left hook. The best punch for Tucker Lutz throughout this entire fight is going to be that left hook from the orthodox stance, and he's going to land it early, and he's going to land it often. We saw against Jamal Emmers that when Pat Sabatini got caught on the chin, he got caught stepping in. He got hurt. Emmers jumped on top of him, and, um, you know, he played the leg lock game. He played the Ashigarami game with Pat Sabatini, and he lost. You don't want to play the grappling game with Sabatini because that's when you're going to fall into his game. You're going to fall into his wheelhouse, and that's how you lose. You look at the fight against, uh, who did he fight before Jamal Emmers? It was, let me see, let me see. I can't think of, uh, Tristan Connolly, I believe. But Connolly 
was fighting at a weight class that wasn't his natural weight. Um, and he was, he just got out grappled, out wrestled. If Sabatini gets a hold of you, if he's able to get your back, if he's able to sink those hooks in, if he's able to control you from the top position in mount, in side control, in that half guard, that is where he's going to take over. And you don't want to play on the ground. We've seen that Tucker Lutz can go 15 minutes. We, we went over a lot of his wins. A lot of his wins come by way of knockout. A lot of his wins come by way of decision. He does have some submissions, but that's not his primary bread and butter. That is not where he wants to play around with Sabatini. But I don't think Sabatini's defenses are good enough on the feet to fight a guy who has as good and as clean of hands as Tucker Lutz. You know, Tucker Lutz isn't very well known in the UFC. He's only had one fight in the, or I'm sorry, two fights. No, I think one fight, right? Because he only had one fight in the UFC. Yeah, because he won a decision over Sherrard. Yeah, Sherrard Blackledge. That was and Dana White's Tuesday Night Contender Series. Prior to that, he won another decision over Chase Gibson on the Dana White's Tuesday Night Contender Series. So two wins on the Contender Series and then a decision victory over Kevin Aguilar. Tucker Lutz is technical. He's crisp. He's clean. He's got good footwork. You see him sometimes switch from orthodox to southpaw off of that jab, and then he'll step back into orthodox, and he'll just work that jab. He'll fake and feint. He'll pop that right hand, fake it, throw the left hook. He'll catch you stepping in with the left hook, the one, two, three. He's got good combinations. He's got a good uppercut. Look for him to fake the left hook, fake the jab, change the levels, and come up top with the uppercut, especially against a guy who's so low in his stance because he's such a primary grappler in Sabatini. He's got that low wrestling style stance. He can throw his strikes. You know, he does have decent striking, like I said earlier, but it's not an area you want to play around with against a guy who's as crisp and as clean with the shots as Tucker Lutz. I honestly think that Sabatini is not going to be able to get that grappling going early, and he's going to get caught early and often against Tucker Lutz. He's going to get hit with that check left hook. He's going to get hit with that right hand. He's going to get caught stepping in on a counter. He's going to get dropped, and he's going to get hurt, and I think he gets finished by TKO. I'm going to go with Tucker Lutz, top gun Tucker Lutz, to defeat Pat Sabatini via a second-round TKO. I think the boxing... Um, the hand speed is just going to be too much for Sabatini, and he's not going to be able to get that grappling off. If he's able to get that grappling off, though, like we said, and he can get Tucker Lutz into that third round where he's shown to be tired against Kevin Aguilar, losing that third round after having two dominant, um, after having a dominant first two rounds, then that's where Sabatini can take over and maybe get a split decision or maybe sync up a submission if he can drop into those leg locks, drop into those heel hooks, or you know work to take the back and sink in a choke, but. I think the boxing, the striking is just going to be too much for Sabatini. I think he's going to get caught early and often, and I think he can survive the first round, but I don't really trust the chin of Sabatini too much. So I'm going to go with Top Gun Tucker Lutz to defeat Pat Sabatini via a second round TKO. I think he catches him stepping in with the left hook, follows up with the right hand, jumps on him on the ground, and gets the TKO finish. So second round TKO, improving to 13-1 and for Top Gun Tucker Lutz. All right, and the next fight up on the card that we're going to discuss is the first fight on the main card in the bantamweight division. You've got dangerous Davy Grant coming off that war against Marlon Chito Vera where he lost a decision because Marlon was able to take over in the later rounds, going up against a prospect in the UFC, one of the brightest prospects in the UFC and in the entire organization. In He doesn't have a nickname, but we'll call him Mr. Knockout. He's a fan of Dr. Pepper. That's his favorite drink. Him and uh, Randy Costa had a battle between 
what was it? Dr. Pepper and Randy Costa was a big fan of, Ooh, I can't think of it. I can't think of it. What was it? Uh, I, I, I can't think of it off the top of my head. So forgive me, but that is Mr. Knockout Adrian Yanez. He comes into this fight with a record of 14 victories and three defeats. Davey Grant, a record of 13 victories and five losses. This is a great fight. And man, I know a lot of people are going to pick Adrian Yanez right off the bat because of his boxing, because of his knockout ability, because of his countering ability. But this fight is not easy for him. Davey Grant is a gamer. Davey Grant is a veteran. I know that you look at the records and they're very close in terms of their professional mixed martial arts experience, but the UFC experience sides heavily with Davey Grant. I mean, Davey Grant fought Marlon Vera back in the day, and I believe he won a decision over Marlon Vera. They just fought again. Vera got the win back and defeated him in a gritty war, a bloody back-and-forth war. Um, Davey Grant winning the first round pretty decisively, but then Marlon Vera being able to use that clinch control, use those elbows, use those shots, cut up Davey Grant, and just out-grapple and out-wrestle him and uh, control the pace for the second and the third round and win a dominant decision, even probably getting a 10-8 in that third round. But yeah, this is not an easy fight for Adrian Yanez, you know. I, I don't know. Is it Yanez? It's Yanez, right? Adrian Yanez. This is not an easy fight for Adrian Yanez. You know, I think a lot of people are saying, oh, it's Mini Masvidal. He looks just like Jorge Masvidal. He uses the same, you know, lackadaisical movement and the fakes and faints with faints with the hands, faints with the legs, you know, fainting the kick, stepping in with the one, two. He's very, oh, excuse me. He's very good at that. But this is, an e this is not an easy fight. This is a fight that's going to push Adrian Yanez. But I also think even though it's probably the most difficult fight in his career, it's also a fight where the counter opportunities are going to be there and they're going to be there in ample opportunity. And it could be one of the biggest highlight finishes of Yanez's career if he's able to win. And, you know, here's the thing. You know, Davey Grant, primarily he's fighting out of orthodox but he is very good at switching with that right hook to the body and a left hook up top. He's not really using the one-twos. He likes to use a lot of low kicks. Look for him to try to chop down the base of Adrian Yanez in this fight. He's going to try to set up those low kicks. Try to use the jab into a low kick, a hook into a low kick. You know, tie style. One-two hook outside low kick. He's going to be looking to chop those legs. But he does like to switch stances a lot. And I know a lot of people are going to say that's going to give Yanez trouble. I do think if he sets it up between, but you know, behind a couple of shots, that those stance switches could give Yanez trouble. You know, he's got two knockouts off of a stance switch. Um, I guess the one wasn't a stance switch; it was just a right hook shifting into a left hook, and he caught Jonathan Martinez. Or I'm sorry, he caught Martin Day. But then against Jonathan Martinez, he was able to switch step right hook to the body into a left hook up top. It's not a one-two hook. It's not straights and then looping shots. He likes to use his combinations, but he'll use right hook, left hook, left hook, right hook. But he loves to go to the well with the jab, the jab, the one-two, and then he'll switch step into southpaw with the right hook to the body and follow up with a left hook up top to the head because the right hook to the body gets you circling towards that power left and you run right into it you get chinned. That's how Davy Grant gets these knockouts. He's got a really good left hook, a lot of power in his left hand, but against a guy who's so crisp, so clean on the feet. You know, you look at the fight against Randy Costa, he's able to make adjustments. And that's something you have to look at with these bright, young, up-and-coming prospects is I know Adrian Yanez has a lot of experience, but he doesn't have a lot of, of experience under the UFC banner, but he's able to make adjustments. You watch the fight with um, 
Randy Costa, and the jab was killing Yanez in the beginning of that fight. Just a long, rangy jab, the jab, the jab, the one-two, the jab into the lead left high kick, the jab one-two into the cross, or the one-two into the high kick, you know, the cross high kick. The jab was dictating the pace in that first round. But Costa blew his wad. He got a little bit too excited, and, you know, Yanez was able to get a hold of the timing, and he was able to punch with the jab. You jab with the jab of Randy Costa. So when Costa would throw it and try to use that range, Adrian Yanez would throw right back. So you're not able to use that distance in that range because you have to reset as you're getting countered with the jab from Yanez. And that was once he started to get the timing, once he started to get the range, it was one, two, left hook to the body. One, two, two, right hook, left hook to the body, right uppercut. One, two, hook, hook, uppercut to the head. And that was it. You know, he got the second round TKO finish, which I believe if you go back and listen to my podcast and my predictions, um, yeah, I think I called the second round. I think I might've called a knockout, not a TKO, but I did call a second round finish for Yanez in that fight. And he does remind me of a Jorge Masvidal. So when people call him mini Masvidal, don't take that as an insult. It, it's a, it's a compliment to a guy like Adrian Yanez. He's got good movement. He's very calm. He's very, you know, he's very calm inside the cage. And like I said, the ability to make adjustments is something that's going to pay dividends against Davy Grant because this isn't going to be an easy fight. Maybe he catches him with a counter early because Giannis's counter ability is, is fantastic. I could see it happening, but if not, it's going to be a long drawn out drag out fight. You know, Davy Grant's a veteran. He's not easy to get a hold of. He's, he's very active on the feet. He likes to throw a lot of combinations when he switches to Southpaw. Sometimes he'll throw that stepping right sidekick and then he'll go back to Orthodox. But mainly when he switches Southpaw, it's off of that right hook to the body and the left hook up top. But against Martin Day, or I'm sorry, against Jonathan Martinez, I believe, when he switches southpaw, if you can catch him mid-switch as his stance is square or catch him as he's throwing that hook to the body with a clean counter shot, he can get dropped and he can get hurt. He got hurt in that fight against Martin Day. He switched southpaw, got caught, and got hurt. I believe he got caught with the same shot against Jonathan Martinez. Switch stances. Right as you switch stance, you step in with a one-two. You step in with a counter hook. You time that low kick because sometimes he'll switch off a low kick and you catch him on the chin mid switch because your stance is square your defenses are down and with a guy who's so good off the counter like Adrian Yanez I think that he's going to be able to catch him in this mid stance switch I think uh Yanez isn't the greatest with the straight shots he can use him he's got a good jab a good one too but it's a lot of right hook into left hook you know but he'll throw it kind of like an uppercut it's a mix between a hook and an uppercut kind of a hybrid so the angle is a little bit different and it's a little bit harder to defend but he'll throw that right hook left hook right uppercut left uppercut pop pop boom boom pop pop boom boom you know he's very good at stepping in when gustavo lopez switched stances off that jab and tried to come in with a right hand he switched off the jab right as he switched off the jab yana's countered with the right hand and caught him on the chin and stunned him it's quick it's clean and it's precise counters there's no wind up in these counters from yanez which makes them harder to see and it makes them more accurate when when you know accuracy, you know, you hear it all the time. You, you go back and you listen to Conor McGregor. Precision beats power, timing beats speed. The precision and the timing of Adrian Yanez is levels above Davy Grant, in my opinion. I think it's going to be a close first round, but I think Yanez is going to finally get that timing. He's going to work his way into the fight, start landing the jab. He's going to start faking with that rear teep kick, and then pop, pop. He's going to throw a teep kick to the body, throw a high kick up top, one, two, one, two, hook to the body, pop, 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 right hook, left hook, step off. You know, he's going to switch stance southpaw, go back to orthodox to kind of 
box Davy Grant in. He's going to catch him off of a stance switch because he likes to go to the well with that hook to the body, hook up top switch stance a lot. He's going to catch him, boom, boom, stepping in, and he's going to drop him, and he's going to get the TKO. I am going to go with a second-round TKO victory for Adrian Yanez. Should we call him Mr. Knockout? Because I think he gets another one here over the veteran in dangerous Davy Grant. So Adrian Yanez to defeat Davy Grant via a second round TKO off of that counter shot. All right. The next fight up is a battle in the women's flyweight division. You've got a battle between the number six ranked Joanne Jojo Wood, formerly Joanne Calderwood, with a record of 15 victories and six defeats, going up against the number nine ranked Tyla Santos, who comes into this fight with a record of 18 victories and one defeat. Um, this fight is basically a two-way street. So if the fight stays on the feet, if the fight stays at in the striking match and it stays at kicking range, Joanne Calderwood pieces are up and probably either gets a finish or a 30-27 decision. If the fight goes to the grappling, which Tyler Santos, that's her bread and butter, if she's able to get a hold of her in that body lock, if she's able to get the over-under position, use the outside trip, use the inside leg trip, you know, the inside reap, and get that top control, that top position, it's either going to be a submission victory for Santos, a TKO, or a decision. So whoever is able to dictate their game plan and dictate the pace of the fight in the area where they feel the most comfortable is going to win the fight. It's either going to be the striking of Calderwood that cruises her to a decision or a finish, or it's going to be the grappling, the top pressure, and the ground and pound of Tyler Santos that either gets her a finish or gets her a dominant decision. And that's how the fight's going to go. I don't expect this to be back and forth. Whatever area of the fight, whatever individual can you know, implement their game plan is going to dominate. It's going to be domination one way or the other. There's no 29-28 split decision here. It's either a finish or a dominant decision for either one of these women in this division. Now, I'm a big fan of Joanne Calderwood, um, but she just can't seem to get it together. And even when she does, she gets a number one contender fight and she loses, like the fight against Jennifer Maya. Then she goes and she fights Lauren Murphy, and it was a very, very close fight, one that many people believe Joanne Calderwood could have won. She could have won the first round and then won the third round, two rounds to one. She was able to come back. But the grappling, the top pressure, and the wrestling of Lauren Murphy is what you know won her that fight. It wasn't anything in the striking. On the feet, Calderwood was winning that fight. You know, it's a left hook into a right high kick, the one-two, the cross into the rear body kick, the cross into the high kick, the one-two high kick, the jab into the lead high kick. If it stays on the feet, even in the clinch positions, if Calderwood's able to get that over-under position, if she's able to get that tie plum, land those elbows, land those knees, use that Muay Thai style, those front kicks to the body, the teeps, the long knees to the body, if it's able to stay at kicking range, in boxing range, that is where Joanne Calderwood dominates this fight. Santos isn't good enough on the feet to hang with Calderwood, but if Santos is able to get past those kicks, Catch a kick, get a takedown, catch a kick, trip out the base leg, get into the top position, get into a half guard, use the top pressure, land elbows, land punches, you know, work to get the back of Calderwood, work the ground and pound to set up a submission. She's going to win. Either way this fight goes, it's a one-way street to victory. And honestly, I think that Tyler Santos is just going to dominate here against Calderwood. I'd love to see Joanne, well, I guess it's against Wood, Joanne Wood now. Um, I think Wood... 
Um, I love Joanne Wood. She's one of my favorite fighters in that division. She has been for a long time, ever since the Ultimate Fighter. She's very technical on the feet. She's very talented. She's got good power. She has gotten knockouts before. Good front kicks, good teeps. Everything she throws on the feet is technical. Everything she throws on the feet is really, really great technique. Almost perfect technique. And honestly, I just think that um, I think that Santos dominates here. I think that we've seen the the path of victory to defeat Calderwood. It's getting using your wrestling, using the grappling, getting in the top position. You know, trying to lock up an armbar, trying to get the back and lock up a choke. If you're able to get that grappling off early and you're able to get her to the place where you want her to be, she can't get up from the ground. She can't seem to do anything to defend it. Her takedown defense has gotten better throughout her career. That's something I think you'll see from fight to fight to fight. She's not as easy to take down. She does have decent scramble ability, but against a girl like Tyla Santos, I think the grappling is going to dominate. I think this is going to be an easy win for Santos. Um, I think it might be a close minute, two minutes in the first round, but Santos is going to be able to close that distance, get into that clinch range, um, get the body lock, get the trip takedowns, get to the top position, dominate. I think she's going to pepper her up with the ground and pound herder and then lock up a submission. I think she finds a way to the back of Joanne Calderwood, sinks those hooks in, gets that rear naked choke, uh, hand to bicep, other hand to the opposite shoulder, squeeze, and gets the tap. I'm going to go with Tyla Santos to get the victory here via a first-round rear naked choke submission. I think it's dominance again. I mean, you've just seen that the the top, the takedowns and the wrestling have, have always been trouble for Calderwood. And against a girl who's 18-1, and one, who's as talented as Tyla Santos, I, I don't think that it's really going to be any different against a girl like Santos. So Tyler Santos to get the victory via a first round submission, potentially could be second round, but I'm going to stick with my gut. I'm going to go with an early takedown, early top control, good ground and pound and an early rear naked choke submission for Tyler Santos to improve to 19 and one, and also move her way up the rankings to number six and potentially crack that top five. This would be a big loss for Joanne Wood, um, a very, very tough loss, but um, I do think that, she can get the job done here. Or I do think that she is uh, maybe potentially could come back from this, but I just think Santos dominates here. All right, now it's the co-main event of the evening, the people's main event. This should have been the main event for this card. It's a welterweight bout between the number six ranked Michael Mav the Maverick Chiesa, who comes into this fight with a record of 18 victories and five defeats, going up against the number 14 ranked, undefeated at 14-0, Sean Brady, um, number 14 versus number six. This is a big, big opportunity for Sean Brady to really break through into that top five, get into that top 10 and be one or two wins away from getting a number one contender fight. This is a huge fight for Sean Brady and it's a very tough fight for Michael Chiesa. And I don't think a lot of people are really seeing how tough this fight is going to be. Um, I'm going to be honest, you know, the long reach and the range that Chiesa has and that he employs He's very good at using it. His lateral movement, his his um, 
lateral movement up against the cage, switching the southpaw, you know, moving around. He he likes to, you know, fight out of that southpaw stance. He'll shoot that left hand in. Sometimes he'll be circling, circling, circling. He'll stop and he'll shoot that left hand in like a pot shot. Sometimes he'll step forward, fake the jab, you know, look to control with the hands and then just shoot the right, the straight left down the middle. He's got good teep kicks, which is something he's going to want to use against Brady, but you don't want to get your kick caught and get into the grappling. I think a lot of people believe that in this fight, Michael Chiesa is going to dominate uh, in the grappling exchanges. He's long, he's lanky, he's he's very strong for this division. Um, a lot of people don't even know how he makes 170 because he's so big. He's he's thick. He's he's long and lanky, but he's thick. He's got good muscle. He's a big guy. There, I don't know how he made 155. And I think a lot of people believe that he's going to be able to get the takedown, um, get to the back of Sean Brady, you know, tie him up dominate him in the grappling and then eventually get a submission that that's what I think a lot of people are are believing and that's what I think a lot of people believe is going to happen in this fight but honestly I think that Sean Brady has a way better chance in this fight than people think and it's not only because he's so strong in the grappling I believe he's stronger than Michael Chiesa um, you, you hear Paul Felder say it. He's one of the strongest people he's ever trained with. He's got a big, thick back. He's a thick guy. He's not that tall. He doesn't have the greatest reach. But when he gets a hold of you, he is strong, and he can, you know, dominate you in the positions. Um, you know, I think that Michael Chiesa might be a little bit better in terms of the grappling control or in the scrambling ability. He does probably have better scrambles than Sean Brady. But on the feet, it's Sean Brady all day. Brady is way better, a way better striker. He's got way better fakes and feints. He's got way cleaner technique with the hands. His boxing is really going to show out in this fight against Chiesa. Chiesa does not have good, good striking. It's not. It's probably the worst striking in the top 15 of the welterweight division. But he knows how to use his length, use his reach, and use his range to get to where he wants the fight to be. He's very good at game planning. He's very good at finding a way to the route that he wants to use to win the fight. It's a lot of lateral movement, you know, using the length and the reach so they can't get a hold of you, and then he shoots a takedown. Or he gets a hold of you, you throw a strike, he locks up an over-under position, and he sinks to that one side to get the outside trip. Or he gets to the body lock, throws you back one way, brings you back, changes direction, and gets the trip and works from the half guard into the full mount. He's very good at transitioning on the ground and flowing from position to position. But I do believe that Sean Brady, his boxing is going to be a big problem for Kiesa. I mean, you look at the, let's see if I can pull it up really quick. Give me one second. I don't know if it is here. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Uh, all right, here we go. So let's look at the reach. So height, um, it's a two-inch height advantage. Well, a three-inch height advantage for Kiesa. He's 6'1", Brady's 5'10". Um, the reach, it's a three-and-a-half-inch reach advantage for Kiesa, and Kiesa is going to look to use all of that three-and-a-half inches that three and a half inch reach advantage against Brady. He wants to stay on the outside. He wants to use his lateral movement. He wants to get Brady to overcommit on a shot, duck under, um, either work his way, shoot a double, work his way back up to the body lock and get the outside trip and then work from the half guard, work from the full mount, try to get the top position and then work for a submission. With Brady, he's going to want to be in and out with his feet. He's going to want to use his footwork. He's got way better footwork, I believe, when it comes to being in and out 
Um, I think that Kiesa is probably a little bit better laterally, but uh, Brady's a little bit more economical and a little bit wiser with his footwork that he uses. Um, he does have trouble when he starts getting hit. So if Kiesa is able to land one, two, three punches and really set him back and land the one twos, land the jab, land the one two, land the teep kick. When Brady has those shots coming at him, it's a little bit harder for him to get into a rhythm. When you land a few shots on him, when you get him behind that jab, when he can't get in on you, it's trouble for him. You know, but I don't think Kiesa has even close to better and close to as good striking as Sean Brady. Brady's left hook against the southpaw and Michael Kiesa, he's going to look to come over the jab with the left hook. Due to the reach advantage, it's going to be a little bit harder for Brady to close that distance. So, you know, I'm sorry for that brief pause there, but I honestly think that Brady is a very, very bad matchup for Michael Chiesa. A lot worse of a matchup than I said, than people are giving him credit for. I heard somebody say that Chiesa is a better striker and Chiesa has more power than Brady on the feet. Um, I don't know what fights you've been watching, buddy, but Chiesa is not a good striker. He uses his movement and his length and his reach very well, which makes him harder to hit. But once you're able to hit him, it's kind of a wrap. You know, Pettis dropped him. You know, uh, Luke was able to time him up against the cage and get him into circle into a left hook, even though it was more of a knockoff balance. You know, he can get knocked off balance. And I think Brady has one of the best left hooks in the game. His check left hook is absolutely phenomenal. Like I said, it's going to be a little bit harder to land it on Kiesa because of that height and that reach advantage. But honestly, um, I think this is going to be a dominant win for Sean Brady. And I think he's really going to surprise a lot of people with how good he looks here against Kiesa. I think he's very, very strong when it comes to the grappling. It's going to be hard to get control of Kiesa because he's going to be moving so much. But the strength and the top pressure of Sean Brady, I think it's going to really play a factor here against Kiesa. And I don't know if I technically see it being a finish, but a lot of people who really rant and rave about Kiesa's grappling, his wrestling, his scrambles, his submissions, man, those were the same people that didn't believe that Vicente Luque could submit um, Michael Kiesa. And he was able to scramble out of the submission attempt from Kiesa and then lock up that Darsh choke after he got out of a choke, uh, after he got out of that arm bar from Kiesa. So I, even if you go back and listen to my predictions for that fight, I didn't pick Luke to win by submission, but I said it is very possible. And it is more likely that Kiesa gets submitted by Luke than it is that Luke, uh, then, then it is that, um, Luke would get submitted by Kiesa. A lot of people didn't believe me and I was just sitting there laughing at him. And I'm not saying I predict every fight wrong. I've called so many fights wrong. I can't even count, you know, early on in my podcasting, you know, career. I, I call a lot of fights wrong, but this is one, I think it's a dominant decision. And or actually, I think it's just a dominant performance overall from the undefeated Sean Brady. I think that his boxing is going to be a problem. I think he's going to land that check hook over the right jab of Michael Chiesa. I think that the fakes and feints on the feet, the right hand left hook, the one, two left hook right hand. I think it's going to be a lot of problems for him. I think that Chiesa 
is not going to be there to get that inside low kick landed on him that will direct him into the right hand of Sean Brady because Brady does have a good right hand. But those teep kicks that he throws, um, you know, he went to decision with Court McGee. He did win, but it was a close fight. You know, I think a lot of people put a little bit too much stock in that fight for Sean Brady. He was able to catch a kick from uh, Court McGee and direct it into a brutal left hook. If he lands that left hook clean on the chin of Kiesa, I don't think he can knock him out, but I definitely think he can stun him. And then that would work to the grappling and the top pressure and the strength that Brady ha has when it comes to the wrestling and the submission game. I think we're going to see Brady's strength really shine through when it comes to the grappling. I think that Kiesa is more, is uh, definitely like, uh, it's definitely possible that Kiesa gets submitted here by Brady, but I do think that the boxing is going to play a big factor. I think he's going to be able to land that left hook, land the one-twos, land those low kicks, you know, use the fakes and feints. He's very patient and he's very methodical in the shots that Brady looks to land. I think he's going to get into a grappling exchange. I think he's going to find a way to um, lock up the wrist control, get the Dagestani handcuff on, um, the Dagestani handcuff on Kiesa, I think he's going to work in the uh, the half guard or the full mount up against the cage, kind of like a Khabib. He's going to find a way to get the back of Kiesa. He's going to catch him in a scramble. I think he's going to lock up a guillotine choke, and I think he's going to get a submission. So my pick is Sean Brady to remain undefeated and defeat the number six ranked Michael Maverick Kiesa via a... You know what? Do I want to go with a guillotine? He's got a really good guillotine from the mount. He's able to grab it, um, roll onto his shoulder, and then work to that top position very well. You saw it against uh, Christian Aguilera. Do I go with a submission via guillotine? Do I go with a TKO? Um, I could see Brady finishing him on the feet, I'm going to be honest. But I think he drops him on the feet. He hurts him. He finds a way to get into a scramble, get into that top position against Chiesa. And I think uh, I'm going to go with a rear naked choke for this one. You know, we haven't seen Brady get a lot of those in his career. He's got a very good guillotine. That's his best submission. But I think he's going to find a way to get the back of Kiesa, lock up a rear naked choke, and uh, I think Kiesa goes to sleep. So my pick is Sean Brady to go to 15-0 and and defeat the number six-ranked Michael Maverick Kiesa, break into that top five via a second-round rear naked choke submission. All right, and now we get to the main event of the evening. I'm going to be honest. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on the prediction for this fight because it's not a great main event. It's not that interesting of a fight for me. Um, I think it's pretty dominant in one area. I could be wrong. You know, I really don't care who wins this fight either way. It is a good fight stylistically. It's good in terms of the rankings. You know, in the matchmaking, it's not bad, but it's just something that doesn't really interest me. And it's a main event bout. And the women's bantamweight division between the former women's bantamweight champion, the legend of women's MMA, a pioneer of women's MMA, and Misha Cupcake Tate, who's ranked number eight in the division, going up against the number seven ranked minus 125 favorite, Caitlin Fenomeno Vieira. Um, you look at the records for both of these girls, and Caitlin Vieira is 11 wins, two defeats. Misha Tate comes back, 19 victories, 7 defeats, coming off that return victory over uh, Marion Renault. She got a pretty dominant decision, but Marion Renault was like, man, I don't even know, what was it, like 8-7 and seven or, or something crazy like that. Hold on, let's see. Marion Renault... 
is nine, eight, and one, and then Mish Tate nineteen and seven. So you know, it's it's not like that she should have won that fight. I know a lot of people picked against her. They thought that Tate was going to get dominated, but Renault was never that great of a competitor. And it's not a knock on her, so to speak, but she just wasn't that good in terms of, I mean, just look at the record, 9-8-1. and one. Um, Misha Tate should have won that fight. And I picked her to win, and she got a dominant victory there, dominant decision. She looked good on the feet. She probably looked the best she's ever looked in terms of the striking. Um, but with Misha's bread and butter has always been uh, the grappling. You look at the fight against Holly Holm. She's getting dominated for four and three quarters of a round. Um, she gets into a scramble, finds a way to take the back and uh, get that submission right at the end of the fight. Uh, Holly Holm doesn't submit, doesn't tap. She punches the air and goes to sleep. And Misha Tate finally got her moment and became the women's bantamweight champion. Unfortunately for her, she ran into Amanda the Lioness Nunes, who is probably the greatest women's fighter of all time at UFC 200, and got the brakes beat off of her. But you look and see what what Amanda Nunes has done now, and you know it's it's no surprise to see what she did to Misha Tate. Misha Tate said she wants to win this fight, get a few more wins, and then be knocking on the door to a rematch with Amanda Nunes. She believes she can beat her. Um, I'm sorry, Misha. I'd love to see you win, but I doubt it. I don't think she beats. Amanda Nunes, I think it's probably the same beating or a worse beating than she got at UFC 200. But let's look at the stats for this fight before we give like the actual prediction. You know, you go into the stats and it's 5'8 for Ketlin Vieira. She's 5'8. Misha Tate 5'6. So a two-inch height advantage for Ketlin Vieira. You look at the reach, it's a 68-inch reach for Ketlin Vieira. She's gonna look to use that three-inch reach advantage to try to keep. Uh, Misha Tate at the end of her jab, keep her at the end of her teep kicks. And then when she steps in, she's going to want to try to get that takedown and uh, work her jujitsu and her grappling because that is the bread and butter for Ketlin Vieira. You know, that's where she's looked the best in her career is the grappling, is the top control, you know, is the, the you know, getting in the top position, working for submissions, constantly threatening with submissions, scrambling out. But that is where Misha Tate is the best. That is not an area where she's going to defeat Misha Tate in. And Misha Tate's striking, it's not the best, but it looked better in the fight against Marion Renault. Now, maybe it's because it was against Marion Renault, but she looked probably the best she's ever looked in terms of striking on the feet. She looked calm. She looked patient. She could land those combinations and use her footwork very well and then set up those takedown entries beautifully and control her on the ground, you know, and control her in the clinch, get the trip takedowns. Get the takedowns, get the top position, you know, grind into her face, get a grinding pressure and pound her with the ground and pound, look to set up submissions. That's what Misha Tate does. She drags you into those deep waters. She gets you on the back foot. She gets those takedowns, gets those trips and works the ground and pound, tries to set up submissions and just dominate you from the top position. It's top pressure, ground and pound and submission attempts from Misha Tate. That is the game of Ketlin Vieira. That is where she likes to, you know, make the fights go to. That is the place she likes to take the fights to. But that's not a place you're going to win against Misha Tate. She's been around for too long. She's too much of a veteran. You're not going to outgrapple Misha Tate, in my opinion. You look at Caitlin Vieira's last fight. I can pull it up really quick. And I believe it was against Yana Kunitskaya. Yeah, okay. So she fought Yana Kunitskaya at UFC Fight Night Blades versus Lewis on February 20th. And she lost that fight via decision. Um, I think that's a fight that Ketlin Vieira probably should have won, but she was getting out grappled the longer the fight went by Yana Kunitskaya. And yes, Yana Kunitskaya is a decent grappler, 
but I feel like Ketlin Vier should have been able to outgrapple her. And, you know, if you're getting outgrappled and out, outpaced and outreversed by Yana Kunitskaya and getting, you know, landed some vicious ground and pound on her and some elbows from the top position later in the fight and only a three-round fight, and now you're going into a five-round fight against a veteran of the sport and a former champion in Misha Tate, it just spells problems for you. Could Ketlin Vieira get her down and lock up a submission early? It's a possibility, but I don't see it, to be honest. I think this is a dominant, dominant victory for Misha Tate. I think she kind of feels out the first round. She probably loses the first round to Vieira. I think Vieira might be able to get some good work done in that first round, but she's going to get tired the longer the fight goes. Misha Tate's going to be able to get those takedowns, get in the face of Vieira with those strikes, um, land some one-twos, land some one-two left hook, you know, land some good kicks to set up the entries to the takedowns, boom, boom, fake the level change, uppercut into the takedown, into the body lock to the outside trip. And I think she just dominates with the grappling and the wrestling the longer the fight goes. I think she gets into the top position, tries to land some brutal elbows from the half guard, posture up, land some elbows, land some punches, elbows, punches. You know, she's going to open up herself for, to get some get some submission attempts off. But I think it's a ground and pound TKO. I'm going to go with a third round ground and pound TKO victory for Misha Cupcake Tate over Ketlin Vieira. I think the pace, the pressure, you know, this is a five-round fight, not a three-round fight. She was getting tired in that third round against Yana Kunitskaya. Misha Tate's a way better grappler, I believe, than Ketlin Vieira, and that's going to show here in this fight. So I think Misha Tate takes over in that third round. Um, Vieira's getting a little tired. I could see potentially fourth round. Maybe she drags it out and gets to the fourth round, but... Um, I'm going to go with a late third round ground and pound TKO. She just starts landing elbows from the half guard, gets into the mount, lands punches and elbows. Vieira's covering up and can't get out of it. So a third round TKO victory via ground and pound for the number eight ranked Misha Cupcake Tate over the number seven ranked Ketlin Vieira. And that's it. Those are my predictions for UFC Vegas 43. I hope you enjoyed. I am back on the podcast. I am back with a vengeance. I'm looking to get those UFC 267 and 268 reviews and analysis out for you as quickly as I can. Thank you guys for listening to the podcast. If you know anybody who likes the technical side of mixed martial arts, is looking to learn more about the game of MMA, the striking, the grappling, explaining striking exchanges, explaining fighters' game plans and their techniques and everything, I'm the guy. Double M is the guy. The Touch Em Up podcast is the place to be for the most technical breakdowns in the entire in the sport of mixed martial arts. I feel like I have one of the most detailed and in-depth predictions and breakdown podcasts for mixed martial arts on the platform of the entire podcast world. So please get this out to anybody you can. The Touch Em Up podcast is available anywhere podcasts are distributed. Oh, I can't even talk. Anywhere podcasts are distributed. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Stitcher, Breaker, and many, many more. You can find me on YouTube at Touch Em Up Podcast. I have fighter breakdowns up of Yuri Prohaska, Sean Brady, who competes this Saturday, um, Hamza Chemaev, who is probably going to get a huge fight coming up against Gilbert Burns. It's in the works, but nothing's official yet. Um, he has a grappling match against Jack Hermanson this weekend, so be on the lookout to watch that. I have interviews with Eric Nixick. Um, you know, Jose Perez, who just won at CFFC, Daya Davis. I'm looking to get him on the podcast again right before Oliveira and Poirier. Um, I have the best MMA breakdowns on the platform, and I'm not tooting my own horn. I just believe I'm one of the most technical podcasts out there. But that's not really for me to decide. That's for the listeners, and that's for you to decide. So leave a review for the Touch Em Up podcast anywhere you can. You can donate to my PayPal. There's a link on my Instagram. There's a link on my Twitter. You can find me on my link tree. You can find me on uh, 
Uh, my PayPal, you can send it to my PayPal, which I believe is linked in the description of the podcast, as well as the um, my Twitter, which is at armbarnation316, and my Instagram, which is at gloriousmandm. That is G-L-O-R-I-O-U-S-M-A-N-D-M. And thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Double M, and I'm out. Enjoy the fights this weekend.